This is What's Growing On, a show where we dig up the latest dirt on Ontario horticulture production, helping producers navigate best management practices and taste the sweet success of a quality crop. My name is Christy Greg McGuffin. And I'm Cassie Russell. Join us while we talk with specialists in the field of fruit, vegetables, and specialty crops to find out what's really growing on. Welcome to episode 7 of What's Growing On. I hope everyone had a great August long weekend. Now for this week, we have a special extended release for you on the basics of IPM with a special focus on summer disease in apples. Now for this week's episode, we do apologize in advance for any background noises you might pick up. I'm sure a lot of listeners can understand and sympathize that home offices aren't always distraction and noise free. Now next week, we will be back to resuming our normal episode format, including crop updates and shorter fruit and vegetable segments. As always, for any up-to-date Ontario-specific crop updates, please check out our blogs, onvegetables.com and onfruit.ca. Without further ado, hope you enjoy this week's special extended episode. So in the heat of the summer, we often see general pest pressure starting to ramp up around the province. And Christy and I were thinking it would be really great to go back to some basics of pest management. And who better to cover that topic than our own co-host, Omafra's Integrated Pest Management Specialist for Horticulture, Christy Grigg McGuffin. Hi, thanks for having me on this side of the conversation. <laughs> A little bit different this week. <laughs> I like it. No pressure. <laughs> So yeah, as I said, um, I think it'll be great to go back to basics a bit here and and talk about integrated pest management or IPM. So why don't you start off by describing what that is? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, so the the term integrated pest management, like it's it's really nothing new. It's something that's been around since the 1970s, kind of around the time when you know there is more more pressure put on kind of the ecological and social implications of pest management. You know, around the time of DDT issues and, you know, the release of the, the book Silent Spring, those sort of things. So um, so the idea of IPM then is that it's this approach that looks at kind of the long-term prevention of a pest or their damage um, by managing the ecosystem. So it's in a way where it's um, economically sustainable, but also environmentally and in this kind of day and age now, um, socially sustainable. So part of the process, it's the idea of bringing together kind of these, this combination of control tactics rather than just relying on, on one, which, you know, in the past was basically the chemical control. So it's using multiple strategies to try and reduce the pest population. And, and that's not a matter of eradicating a pest. So you're not trying to get rid of it completely, but rather maintaining it at this economic injury level. So this level where below that, or I'm sorry, level which above that, um, you would have significant economic injury on the, on the crop. Right. And so IPM is not a new thing, but why are we continuing to focus on IPM? Yeah, so you're right. Like, it, it's not a new thing. It's been around for a really long time. But the thing is, is that um, IPM now is very different than IPM 
in the 70s. And I bet if we talked again in 10 years time, it would have an entirely different face. So it's a really dynamic concept and it's continuously evolving. And this is kind of as our agricultural practices change, um, you know, as we grow crops differently or there's new types of crops that we're introducing. Um, as our understanding of kind of the agricultural landscape and, and the biology of the pests kind of widen and broaden, um, or if new pests are, are introduced into the complex, and also as new technologies developed as well that's related to pest management. So all of those things really um, impact kind of how IPM uh, is shaped. And, and also I think the perception of what constitutes IPM has really changed. Um, so there's a lot that's really been incorporated into standard programs now that I think growers wouldn't really think twice about, right? Like many, many, if not most growers have some kind of general understanding of their pest issues before they spray. And many think about impacts of environmental conditions like weather on, you know, the risk potential or the change in their, their pest complex. Um, and so these are our components of IPM, but they've really become kind of so ingrained in our regular practice that I think when people now think of IPM, they don't even look at that, right? And instead, they're looking at all of those advanced technologies that they haven't really adopted. Right. So if a grower was saying that they're using IPM practices, what would that actually look like? Yeah, and that, that's a really good question because it's, I mean, it's not one single program. And that's what kind of makes IPM such a complex topic. So it's really, it's really about thinking of IPM as a continuum. And that kind of is based on the grower and their operation, right? And I mean, even if just in our province, we've got such vast differences in geography and in climatic variation, right? From one region to the next. Um, there's differences in soil type. There's variances in pest complexes. Some some regions have, you know, some pests that others don't. Um, and it also comes down to the availability of labor and equipment and, and just finances, whether an operation can afford certain parts of a management program. Um, and so all of that shapes really what an IPM program takes, right, from, from one operation to the next. So, I mean, really the goal of, of IPM, at least kind of from, from my role as an IPM specialist, is to try and continually move those grower practices along that continuum as then new technologies developed and adopted. But, but overall, while we do see kind of these differences in IPM programs between operations, the foundation of an effective IPM program really does remain consistent. And it consists of kind of six key components. So those would be prevention, identification, monitoring, action thresholds, control measures, and lastly, evaluation. Okay, so maybe it would be helpful if we could go into um, detail on each of those different yeah. foundations. Yeah, for sure. And so so if it's okay with you, um, I'm wondering if maybe we could kind of look at a specific pest issue just as kind of like a case study as we go through it. Like yeah. I think, you know, IPM programs, they look, the, the way they look really depends on the pest. And so it's nice to kind of talk general terms, but I do think it's also kind of helpful to hear some some concrete examples of a program that's actually in practice. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, that, that sounds great. What were you thinking? 
So, well, so right now um, in the Apple world, uh, we're really starting to think about summer diseases. So maybe we could kind of pull that into the mix. <laughs> sure. My Apple, <laughs> my Apple knowledge is not quite as extensive as certain vegetables, but uh, it'll be a great learning experience. <laughs> um, so yeah, with that in mind, why don't you give us a quick overview of um, some of the summer diseases that Apple growers have to deal with first? Yeah, for sure. So, so when I'm referring to summer disease, we, we typically kind of think of um, there, there's four kind of main fungal diseases. So there's the fly speck and sooty blotch complex, and then there's the fruit rots, black rot and bitter rot. And so these are kind of referred to as your summer diseases because they really don't come into play until like mid to late season is when we start to see symptom development. Um, and this can extend into storage as well. Something like bitter rot, um, a lot of times it can become a major issue when the fruit comes out of storage and sits on the shelves. So, um, I'm not going to go into specifics about the, what the damage actually looks like for these, um, but if anyone's looking for information, they can go on our Ontario Crop IPM page, um, or they can check out uh, my past updates on the, uh, the OnFruit blogs at onfruit.ca. Generally speaking, though, um, all of these pests, they cause direct damage to the developing fruit, and so that can really impact both the quality uh, and yield. And sorry, these are fungal pathogens that colonize on the fruit as they're sizing through the summer? Yeah, exactly. So we've actually, we've been seeing an increase in pressure from these diseases in recent years. And, um, and I think there's a number of factors that are kind of contributing to, to what's going on there. I think, you know, a, a big thing is our, our changing climate where we're seeing, you know, seasons and summers that are, are hotter than what they were before. Um, or uh, fluctuations in those climates. So we're having, you know, some significant wedding events and we're seeing some seasons where it's very dry. Um, and so this year it's really hot and humid. And so we're seeing kind of an increase in uh, pest complexes that we typically wouldn't have seen before. Um, and we're also seeing an extension then of their activity too as the fall. I, I kind of think of the fall as becoming the new summer. So we're getting those you know, 20 to 30 degree temperatures at the end of October, when before we didn't really have to think about managing diseases come September timing. Um, now we're talking about really extending our management programs into the fall. So we're dealing with the climate change and seeing this increase in kind of new pests or, or issues that weren't really a problem before. And at the same time, we're also seeing a big change in our registered control products that we've got, um, whether it's a loss of products or just a shift. So We've been seeing this movement from broad spectrum pesticides to more, you know, reduced risk target specific products um, with oftentimes more of an emphasis on the biologicals. And so these can have then reduced efficacy on some pests that may have been kind of considered secondary pests before. So they would kind of get controlled by the control of another pest program. Um, so without those in place, then we start to see this increase in pests that we normally wouldn't have had uh, a huge issue with dealing with. Um, and then we're also seeing too, another, another influence, which is why I think we're kind of seeing this increase in these summer diseases is, um, is because we're really driven by consumer demands, especially in apples, um, because we're driven by varieties specific. So, um, so there is this increase in, in want for things like, Gala, Honeycrisp, Ambrosia. So we're seeing an increase in acreage of these, these types of varieties. Um, and some of the varieties can be pretty susceptible to certain issues. 
So, uh, so with that variety, then comes this increase then in all these pest problems. Okay. Um, so why don't we start going through those six key components of IPM and um, how those can translate to managing apple disease. Yeah. So you'd mentioned the first piece of the puzzle was prevention, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I really think prevention is kind of the, the key step in management because really um, it's about preventing or at least kind of reducing the potential for pest establishment in the first place, right? So, I mean, you don't then have to put the time and money in season into the control of something that isn't even there in the first place, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we'll talk about controls in a little bit, but um, the cultural and physical controls, those are often, you know, what, what would be considered preventative measures. So, for example, the first thing that most people usually consider is site selection, right? And, and what sort of impact that would have on the pest problems that they may see. Um, so you'd be choosing sites that, say, have good soil drainage, um, would have really nice airflow. You'd be thinking about preparing the land um, by, you know, use of things like cover crops that will help to kind of reduce those soil-borne pathogens. Um, and thinking about your surrounding landscape, what sort of pressures could be impacting um, the inoculums or the, or the insects that you're going to see, right? Are you surrounded by woodlot? Do you have, you know, adjacent farmland near you? Um, are you right on that kind of urban divide, right, where you've got a whole other set of issues of what your, your management program would look like? Um, but I would think, sorry, I would think that that'd be a little trickier with like orchard fruits because, you know, you're... <laughs> you're dealing with trees that have been there for, you know, years in some cases, right? Yes, completely. Yeah. So it, and so it's, it's difficult. It's kind of, you're, you're doing what you can, right? I mean, mm -hmm. if you're buying into an orchard and it's already an established orchard, you're also buying into the existing issues, right? And so then you kind of have to work your program then um, around that until you get it to the place that you want. So it's not going to be kind of, you won't have this quick fix, right? Um, and same with, you know, if you buy into a land and you're surrounded by woodlots that aren't yours, well, unfortunately, <laughs> there's not going to be, you know, much you can do um, to control from that way. So it's just kind of being mindful of, you know, what your area is so that you're prepared, right, to um, to implement controls if you're going to need it. Yeah. So, I mean, for, for summer diseases, um, speaking of things like woodlots, um, black rot is known to, to be in, found in kind of dead decaying plant tissue. And so it's really common to have higher pressure than in those orchard blocks that are surrounded by woodlot. Um, so, I mean, if you can, again, if you own that land, don't go into your neighbor's area, but if you own that land, then clearing out some of those dead trees can really help to reduce that inoculum load that may be coming in. Um, and similarly, fly speck and sooty blotch, they often overwinter on wild hosts around the area. Um, and in particular, things like brambles, so wild raspberries and blackberries. Um, so having, removing those from the site then can, again, reduce that, uh, that level of inoculum, um, before the season even begins. Right. Right. So, and I mean, you know, in your case with veggies, right, when you grow annual crops, there's more of an option for doing things like crop rotation, right. To, yeah. to help break the cycle, um, or adjusting those kind of planting and harvest dates, um, but across the board, you know, you can, there are other options for, from a prevention standpoint, um, choosing things like resistant varieties. Usually it's disease resistant varieties, but, um, but, you know, in apples, we do have some rootstocks that are resistant to woolly apple aphid. So there are some, some things like that around, but, um, 
But yeah, but so, I mean, that's, that's another option of, again, you're, you know, right out of the gate, you're doing things to try and prevent the pests from establishing. Um, in apples, there aren't really varieties that are known to have resistance for any of those summer diseases that I'm talking about. Um, there are, though, varieties that are more prone to infection. So, for instance, um, any variety that really holds on to fruitlets after chemical thinning, um, so something like a gala, they are really susceptible to black rot because that pathogen overwinters in those fruit mummies. Sorry, um, what's a fruit mummy? <laughs> isn't that a great name? I know, <laughs> I love it. I've never heard of that before. I love it. So when, yeah, so so in order to drop down the number of fruit that are in the tree, right, because you only really want, you know, one fruit per cluster growing, um, then there's often chemical thinning that's applied. And so that knocks off those lateral blooms that have started to develop fruit. And so sometimes, in most cases, those fruitlets, once they die, they'll drop off. But there's some varieties, though, that do hold on to those fruitlets. And so they stay on the tree and they basically get mummified. So they, you know, they get really hard, they get really shriveled. Um, but they're just this nice piece of dead material that pathogens just love to colonize. Right. So they can become these really good sources then uh, of inoculum and spread disease um, if they, the longer that they stay on the tree. And th- those can stay on over the winter and into the next year. So you can be infecting, you know, your next year's crop by, by leaving these on. So it's, le- it's really labor intensive to remove them. Um, but it's kind of, it's just known that those varieties that do hold them on, um, you're going to have to really deal with some of those, the consequences with the disease. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I've kind of talked about prevention from kind of a, you know, a pre, pre-planting stage, right? Um, but it isn't just about that. Prevention is also about, um, you know, in season and during the, the life of the crop, it's about um, maintaining good plant health. So doing things like fertilizing, um, and irrigating if possible um, and when it's needed to kind of help the plant defend itself against pests right just like you know we get we if we get kind of stressed or we get tired there are that our immune system can can really knock down it's the same with the plant um, if we're healthy and our immune system is high we've got a more likelihood of being able to fight any sort of you know pathogens that we face so something like bitter rot, it really likes hot, humid conditions, right? It's considered a Southern disease. And so there's some pathologists that think that reducing the heat stress on the fruit will actually reduce its susceptibility to infection. So basically, the fruit's immune function kind of gets knocked out when the internal temperatures of the fruit reach a certain level. And so if you're putting on something like a sun protectant, so basically like a sunscreen for fruit, um, a sun protectant like Surround or Screen Duo, um, and keeping it kind of a consistent irrigation schedule program, then um, then that could potentially help to reduce the stress put on the tree, and it's better able to defend itself. Right. No, I really like that concept of a healthy plant. It just stands up so much better to uh, other stresses, whether they be like pests or pathogens. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. You kind of you give it the chance to to fight its own battle, right? Yeah. Um, so you listed off like quite a number of, uh, preventative practices there. That's awesome. Um, it's the first step, right? So, um, yes. pro- there's probably a lot more things there that people realize they have available to them, but moving on to the next part of IPM. So you said identification. So what would be part of that component? 
Yeah, for sure. So another really important part to an IPM program that's really going to save you money and time. And so it's not just about being able to identify the pest or its damage, um, but it's about understanding its biology and life cycle. So you know when the pest is active, right? What time during the year or what growth stage of the, the plant that you typically see this or the risk is the highest. Um, you know what conditions are conducive to, to growth or to development. Um, something like, like black rot or bitter rot, um, they're actually, they're rain splashed, right? The spores are splashed by rain. If it's a really dry season, you're not going to get much spread of infection. But if you get a really nice thunderstorm, um, then chances are those spores are going to spread around. And understanding then the difference between them, so something like bitter rot, well, it can actually infect intact tissue, whereas black rot needs a wound or some sort of natural opening to actually get in and cause infection. So, you know, you're at this high risk when you've got this really hot, humid weather, followed by a nice thunderstorm, bitter rot can happen pretty quickly because it doesn't need to have any of those openings to actually cause an issue, right? So it's kind of understanding those sort of um, aspects of the, the pathogen can really help. Um, also knowing, you know, what life stage or timing um, is easiest for control. So, I mean, with disease, control is best done preventatively, right? Once you start to get into a curative thing where you're dealing with it once the symptoms have developed, you run into a lot of risks of things like resistance development. So, so it's about trying to be proactive with disease control. Um, but when it comes to insects, then a lot of times they have life stages that are more vulnerable to, to a certain control measure. Um, or they've got life stages which are the particular, particularly damaging life stage, right? So that would be kind of the targeting life stage. Yeah. So understanding, right, you know, if there's a, the best timing for when control measures should be implemented, um, knowing natural enemies, whether natural enemies are present, and then also having kind of an understanding of where the pest actually overwinters. Is it in the field? Does it go to kind of surrounding woodlots? Is it something like potato leafhopper, which is migratory? So having an idea of, you know, where it's going during the winter will kind of have an impact in terms of what sort of pressure you may be dealing with in the following year. So I, I like to kind of to bring up when I'm kind of talking about this understanding of the biology of a pest and the importance of it. Um, I think fly speck and sooty blotch is a really good example because it's something that tends to not come into people's radar until pretty late in the season um, when kind of the, the markings, the characteristic markings for it start to show up on the fruit. And so without really knowing much about it, um, it's pretty easy to assume then that control would kind of be initiated at that point, right? When symptoms are starting to develop. Right. Um, but in actual fact with, with this complex is that infection actually happens four to six weeks after petal fall, or sometimes that even earlier than that. And so it has this kind of incubation period before symptoms actually start to develop, and they're typically about the same length of time. So while you might be just starting to see damage, the infection and kind of the timing for control actually happened weeks or month, you know, at least a month beforehand. Right. Yeah, honestly, the, this is something I think that's so crucial to understand and remember. You you really need to know what pests you're dealing with and, and like you said, the life cycle because yeah. sometimes when symptoms show up, you've already missed your window to control that pest. For sure. Um, so I think that really ties well into the next part of IPM, which <laughs> I would uh, I would argue is probably the most important 
because uh, I did my master's on improving monitoring practices. <laughs> okay. Um, but no yeah, bias, so, right? <laughs> no bias at all. But uh, yeah, w- so why don't you get talking about monitoring and um, what that entails? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, so as you said, once you understand kind of the biology and life cycle of the pest, then you can really start to begin kind of a regular monitoring program to actually, you know, determine the pest activity that you're seeing in your field, right? And so, you know, is the pest or damage actually present? Um, What's the extent of damage or what's the size of the population? And, you know, if there's signs that perhaps the pressure is building, right? All of those things come into play as to whether you need to even implement control. Um, So, for instance, the back to black rot, um, so the, the pathogen can actually infect multiple parts of the tree. So I'm talking, you know, throughout this, I've been talking specifically about fruit rot, Um, but you can also get infection on the leaves, which is known as frog eye leaf spot. Um, and black rot can also, um, can also infect things like limbs and the trunk causing cankers. So there's these different spots on the tree that it can, can infect. And actually, typically we start to see foliar infection, that frog eye leaf spot start to show up well before the fruits have even started to develop. So it can kind of be an early warning system that you know then if you start to see this frog eye leaf spot and you're doing your active monitoring, you can start to see the fact that, okay, we do have active inoculum in the orchard and spores are being released. So you've kind of got that head start for starting to protect the fruit as it starts to develop, right? Right. But um, but as I mentioned, though, like, you know, that's kind of, that's a, a really great scenario <laughs> to be able to have that, you know, that early warning system in place. Um, not always the case with all diseases, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. So, so typically, I mean, disease management is typically pretty different from, you know, presence of an insect or from those early signs. Um, it's usually focused on preventative control, right? And so, um, it's about looking at, you know, the growth stage of the plant, um, you know, and whether conditions are conducive to infection as well as kind of considering, you know, your level of risk, right? How much inoculum do you have? Is there any risk of it, you know, coming into the, into the field? Um, so yeah, so bitter rot was um, originally an issue that, as I mentioned before, we considered it a southern disease, right? But we've been seeing these, this increased pressure in, in the province um, because of this, these hot, humid summers that we've now been experiencing. So this has kind of been since basically 2012, since we've really been seeing this issue. Um, and in a year like this, where we do have that really hot, humid weather happening, um, then it's really optimal for bitter rot development. And so any sort of rain event can cause an infection and we can, you know, there's, there's a lot of potential for regions to be in a pretty difficult situation if there's any gaps in management. But at the same time, you know, if we go back to last year, 2019 was a pretty wet and cool summer, right? And so it wasn't really a bitter rot year, which meant that management didn't really need to be, you know, as intensive as it would be in a year like this. So it's kind of that, you know, that monitoring of the weather conditions and understanding, you know, whether controls need to be implemented based on that, uh, on that monitoring. So, so it could be visual inspections, this monitoring could be visual inspections that are you know, not very intensive, maybe just, you know, every couple of weeks or a month, or it could be really intensive, right? Where you're doing weekly counts or multiple times a week with counts plus trapping, whether that's, you know, insect trapping, 
um, or spore trapping for, for pathogens, um, and then doing that weather monitoring that I was mentioning. But, you know, whatever you kind of choose, I think it's important to stay on top of the monitoring. So I think, you know, especially it gets into this time of the year where there's so much going on for a grower to try and keep yeah. track of, right? That they've got so much to handle um, that a lot of times monitoring is one of the first things that kind of drops off the table, right? But really this, this type of technique is your early warning system. And so the earlier a problem's found, then the easier it is to manage. So it's really helpful. I mean, if it's at all possible, you know, to have someone either a farm employee that's then dedicated to a monitoring program, or if it's possible to hire a scout or a consultant that's then designated to have that regular monitoring information, it can really go a long way to giving you information about what's going on. Yeah, I agree. It's so important. And see, arguably the most important part is monitoring. Well, I don't know. <laughs> we'll have to talk about that. <laughs> but um, but once your scout, um, if you have one, indicates a pest or damage is found, I know mm-hmm. that a lot of the times that kind of triggers a response, at least in so- with some growers, that, um, you know, it's time for control right away. But, yeah. but is that necessarily yeah. always the case? Yeah, no, no, you're right that it's, yeah, a lot of times that is kind of the go-to, right? You, it's, it's easy to panic. You see it's there, so you want to manage it, right? Yeah. But no, it's not, it's not necessarily the case. And that's kind of where the, the next component of IPM comes in, and that's making use of action thresholds. And so this is where you make control decisions, kind of considering a number of things. So things like the potential for damage, um, but also thinking about the cost of the control method and the value of the production, right? Some, you know, in apples, we have higher value cultivars. So are we seeing damage in these high value blocks or we see damage in these blocks where, you know, maybe they're going for juice or you're not going to get a really big return from it. So you kind of weigh the option of, you know, is, are you getting the best bang for your buck if you were to go in with this control? Um, it's also thinking about to the impacts on other pests, um, as well as, you know, beneficials or the surrounding environment. If it was time to do any sort of, sort of control measure, um, would that have any sort of impact uh, on, on the surrounding ecosystem? Um, so thresholds are really going to vary depending on the pest, right? Some have zero tolerance for damage on the market. So really, their threshold is, is it's there or not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there are others, though, that are, you know, based on, you know, number of individuals per leaf, right? Um, and all of that, too, is also largely how much damage the grower is willing to accept. There's some, you know, that they really, they do not want to see that happening. So their thresholds, their, you know, applied action threshold may be lower than what others are maybe, you know, a little bit more willing to deal with, right? Yeah, for sure. So, so it's also, thresholds are also going to vary depending on the control strategy too, Um, you know, some product or some, some control measures are going to have really rapid knockdown. So they can kind of, you know, once you hit that economic threshold level is when that, that, uh, control measure is going to be in place. But there are some though that need to be on earlier. So thinking about things like biological products, they tend to be slower acting. And so, you know, in some cases they need to, to establish themselves on a plant surface, right? If the mode of action is by competitive exclusion, they really need to, to be able to colonize the area. Um, or the product may have an impact um, in 
you know, the, this a stage, a particular stage in pest development. So they have to be applied then much earlier in the pest activity. So it means then that that action, action threshold is going to be much lower than, than some of those quick acting ones. So yeah, so so some pests have established thresholds. I mean, like I'm I'm talking about these action thresholds. So there there are some pests that do have you know specific values, whether you know that's number per leaf, like I mentioned before, um, or in some cases it's a developmental model that's been generated um, that uses you know either trap catch data or just weather data alone. And so for instance. Flyspec, um, it has a model that's been generated. I, you know, I talked about the biology of flyspec and that the the symptoms don't develop for some time after infection actually happens. So, you know, it's really hard to then kind of implement an action threshold without really knowing when that infection period is is actually occurring, right? So, the model then can it looks at you know the incubation period on wild hosts early in the season, leading to the start of fruit infection. Um, as well as, you know, the incubation period on the apple itself before the symptoms develop. So it's got this kind of this time period it looks at. So infection starts at about 180 to 190 leaf wetting hours after petal fall. So you're basically adding up the number of hours that the leaves are wet since petal fall occurred. And then symptom development is about twice as long as that, right? So add on an extra 180 to 190 or so hours then, and that kind of gets you to the start of, of symptom development. Now, I mean, all of that said, those, those leaf wetting hours are based on using um, leaf wetness sensors. And those are like the electronic leaf wetness sensors. So it's a fairly precise timing. If you look at the literature, then it, it does have values. Those leaf wetting hour values are kind of up to, you know, 270. Um, and that's because this model was developed, uh, you know, a number of years ago, and it was using still those uh, string sensors for leaf wetness. Um, so now that we've moved to the electronic, it's gotten a little bit more precise. So there's a bit of this kind of range of 180 to 270 or so when it starts to show. But nonetheless, it helps to kind of give an idea of when you need to start implementing some appropriate control strategies. Right, right. But I mean, all of that said, that yes, there are some pests that have established thresholds, um, but there are also very, a, a lot of them that don't, right? That this, that threshold information doesn't exist or models aren't available, um, you know, including something like fruit rots on apples. We really don't, we don't have anything that's established. We just know the conditions that are conducive to infection. Um, and so that's really where record keeping is really important to be able to look at the trends in your orchard and really help you kind of fine tune a program that works for you over time so that you kind of establish your own action threshold. Right. And we use the terms action threshold and economic threshold sometimes. Is there really any um, distinguishing features between those two or are they just used interchangeably? So a lot of times they are used interchangeably. So we do... They kind of have these these limits where, um, you know, there's that that threshold at which you are going to see economic loss. And so the action threshold then is usually slightly before that, right? Because you don't want to start implementing control right when you're starting to lose money, yeah. <laughs> right? So you do want to have that action threshold when you're actually starting, you know, to apply control measures those are typically going on shortly before you reach that, you know, that, that actual economic injury level. Okay, good. Yeah. 
Good to know. Um, okay, so let's get to the pressing question here. Um, what does control cover when we're talking an IPM strategy? Because I know that's kind of the main thing that people think of when they're managing, whether it be diseases or insects. Yeah, totally. So, so basically, all the information leading up to this point is what is used then to choose, you know, the best combination of control strategies. So with IPM, we, we think of kind of five main categories of control. So we've got cultural, mechanical or physical, biological, behavioral, and chemical. And so it's making use of multiple tactics that kind of fall into those, those main categories. So I've, I kind of touched already on, uh, on cultural control. And so this, this idea of practices that kind of, they disrupt the pest or they make the environment you know, less suited to support it or, or to support the establishment of it. Um, so I talked about things like crop rotation and planting res- resistant varieties. Um, when it comes to summer disease, one of kind of the key strategies for managing the disease, one of the most effective strategies, because we're limited in many other control options, um, but one of the most effective is orchard sanitation. And, um, and so this is things, it basically means cleaning up the orchard, right? Getting, getting rid of all the potential sources of inoculum. So it could be pruning and removing, you know, dead or dying branches, removing those fruit mummies that we talked about earlier. Bitter rot's really common on decaying fruit on the orchard floor. And what I often see is infected fruit during hand thinning timing that gets tossed on the floor and then left for the season, right? Is kind of typical practice. Um, but what ends up happening is that you just spread the inoculum. It all, it splashes right back up into the tree as soon as it starts raining. So, you know, mulching those up and really trying to facilitate the decay of fruit, um, both in season after hand thinning is, has finished, um, as well as in kind of the fall spring time to, to get any of that fruit that was overwintering or, or was left on the orchard floor. Um, again, just to kind of reduce that inoculum level for the following year. Um, and again, as I mentioned before, too, about fly speck and sooty blotch, that removing those kind of overwintering hosts, like the wild raspberries or blackberries, um, that can help, again, reduce that inoculum load. So that's that's cultural control. Um, mechanical and physical control, That this is uh, making use of equipment or barriers or other means to kind of either kill the pest directly, to block it from an area, or again, similar to, to cultural, to make the environment kind of unsuitable for it, right? So a lot of times we think of mechanical and physical control um, in weed control. So things like using mulches or tilling or mowing. Um, also common in things like bird invertebrate management, so like bird bangers or deer fences. When it comes to summer diseases, it's not really, there's not a lot that's really commonly used in this type of control. Um, but there is, and again, not commonly used in Ontario, but there, there is netting that's available. Um, and it's got a lot of benefits. It's kind of, it's just netting that covers the trees. It's got a lot of benefits to it, can provide hail protection, can prevent insect damage. Um, but what it can also do too, is prevent the introduction of fungal spores. So it can really limit, um, the chances of infection actually occurring. So that's, you know, that's kind of an example of, you know, a physical barrier preventing the fungus from, from creating an infection that's really interesting because i i've seen the the netting on trees before you know when driving through areas um but i didn't know that they could also block out the spores that's that's neat yeah if they're if it's fine enough grade material 
then uh, then yeah, then it's possible that it can actually reduce that. Now it's it's kind of a touch and go because you have to make sure that you've got a clean orchard to begin with, right? Because right. <laughs> what ends up happening is that you're going to increase the humidity within the canopy with that that netting, right? And so if you do already have this high inoculum load, you know, below the orchard, then you're creating a really nice habitat. But if you've got a you know a clean orchard and you've got good control over um, what's happening, you know, within the area of the tree, then having that netting can then you know really prevent that nice barrier. Right. That's yeah. That's such a great point. Yeah. So uh, some of the other controls, things like biological and behavior controls, they're I mean. I'm fascinated with them. They're really cool. Um, you know, they don't necessarily apply directly to the summer disease, but um, tend to be more uh, commonly used with things like insects, weeds, and vertebrates. So biological is making the use of natural enemies, so things like predators, uh, paras- parasites, uh, and pathogens. And so it can either be implemented by um, artificial release, so you, where you're actually physically releasing, say, predatory mites into a, into a block, or it can be kind of enhancing the landscape, right? And trying to kind of support your natural populations of beneficial insects that are around. And then behavioral control, it uses the pest natural behavior to actually suppress the population. So things like mating disruption, um, the use of lures like pheromones or toxic baits to kind of draw them to a certain area, um, as well as the use of sterile insect release that's being used in some areas too. So, like I said, they're they're really cool areas. They're not something that's you know used in summer disease. So I don't have any specific examples, <laughs> but uh, but maybe we can talk about those kind of controls uh, in, in an upcoming podcast or something. Absolutely, yeah. Anything insect related, I'm down for it. But you're <laughs> right; those alone, they they could definitely be their own segment. Um, yeah. And really common in insect control, especially in greenhouse, um, using mm-hmm, biological sure. controls is is you know really prevalent. Um, but I feel like you're building up to cover one more control strategy that can be especially <laughs> applicable to controlling summer diseases and apples. Yes, for sure. And so that's kind of what, again, what people think of when they think of controlling pests uh, in, in agriculture, then people think of chemical control. And yes, chemical control is part of IPM. And we're talking about the use of pesticides from synthetic to biological as well as organic pesticides. So they are used in organic programs um, and organic, you know, organic production is just another type or can be just another type of IPM. So um, with IPM though, the use of pesticides, the idea of it is that they are used only when they are needed, right? So it's going away from the idea of calendar sprays or not being, you know, just, you know, spraying um, whereas now you're, you know, you're targeting your, your products for specific timings and or in combination with other approaches for really this kind of more effective long-term control. And, you know, it's got these benefits from, you know, an environmental sustainability side of things, but it's also really beneficial to incorporate these other approaches with chemical control to really help, you know, improve the longevity of the control product that you're using. So, I mean, you know, not relying solely on the use of pesticides um, can really help reduce, you know, the risk of resistance development, right? So, so IPM is a really effective resistance management tactic. From, you know, the summer disease side of things, when it comes to chemical control, um, you kind of have to take a step back and think about apple scab management. 
before you start thinking about summer disease management. Because so apple scab, um, it's the primary disease of apples in Ontario, right? It's, you know, this is when we think of our disease management programs, that's kind of the front runner for determining what it is that we, we use and what we, what, you know, what strategies are in place. So a typical program, it usually is pretty aggressive early season as a preventative program with fungicides going on pretty regularly during times of that really rapid growth um, or during periods that are conducive to infection. So scab really likes it when it's warm and wet. But once primary apple scab period is over, that's typically kind of like mid to late June or maybe even early July, depending on the year, and no scab lesions are found, then growers typically start to back off rates and extend their intervals between sprays. And so unfortunately, this means that protection may be lacking for summer disease control. Most typical scab fungicides do have some sort of efficacy in some shape or form on summer diseases. Maybe not all of them in the complex, but you know you, you can kind of pick and choose the one that works. So there is an efficacy table uh, in our publication 360A, and that's the Crop Protection Guide for Apples. Um, and it lists all of these products and gives efficacy ratings for, for each disease. So you can kind of, again, choose if you've got particular issues, which would work best. Um, in all cases, though, it's really important because these are issues that will continue up until harvest. You do have to keep in mind the pre-harvest intervals because there are some products that have quite long intervals. Um, you also have to think about maximum applications now that you're getting into the end of the season you know, you can max out on the number of applications that you can use throughout the year. Um, it's also important to pay attention to the rate with some products. So in particular, something like Captan. Again, once you start to back off your scab program, there's a tendency to kind of reduce the rate. And really something like Captan needs the high rate for effective control of summer disease. So after that primary scab period's over, it is still important to maintain that regular fungicide coverage. So you want to be able to keep up with kind of a 14 to 21 day schedule to ensure that you've got those residue levels that are consistent on the fruit. Um, if it's a wet season, then that interval needs to be reduced even shorter to about seven days or so between sprays. And, you know, regardless of the interval, you also have to keep in mind, if you get more than two inches since your last application, you need to reapply because at that point, the residues have all been washed off. And so that infection continues right up until harvest. So it means that some of those late maturing varieties that aren't being harvested until November, they're going to need management well into the fall if conditions are still right for infection. So there's actually, there's been some really interesting research um, that's looked at this residue control, the importance of this residue control for fly speck and sooty blotch. And so it suggests that fungicides may not actually eradicate the pathogen, but they rather just suppress its expression. And so what they did was they limited fungicide applications, um, you know, at the onset of the infection period early in the year. And so that they actually allowed the infection to happen. And then they continued with kind of a standard summer fungicide program and then monitored symptom development in the fall once they ended that program, basically in September. And then they started watching to see the symptom development. Um, and they found that as residue levels declined pretty quickly, that symptoms began to develop pretty quickly. And so it kind of reinforced the importance that, you know, maintaining a fungicide coverage um, is really important because these, you know, it's kind of during these gaps in protection that infection can really get hold.
Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so I mean, chemical controls, you know, it's these, these kind of give a really good snapshot of the current state of the industry and, you know, and how we're dealing with registered control products and how they fit into programs. And, you know, we're seeing kind of a changing picture for control products where I mentioned before, you know, we're moving towards more kind of target specific reduced risk products that, that may not have kind of that efficacy, that full efficacy on these kind of secondary diseases that we think of like fly spec or like black rot. Um, and we're also seeing limited options for control, right? Something like bitter rot, we really only have, you know, three products that are effective. And there's issues when it comes to rotation between chemical groups as a resistance management tactic. Um, and then we also have on top of all of that restrictions on use, whether it's multiple applications for a year or, you know, re-entry or pre-harvest interval restrictions. Um, so it can really limit, you know, how we use the products. And then on top of that, <laughs> then we're also seeing resistance concerns um, because a lot of these products that are available for us are single site or they, they're high resistant risk products. And so continually using these products can really select for pest populations that are resistant. So, you know, it comes down to sprays need to be precise and they need to be strategic. And so it's really important in an IPM program to think about making use of other control strategies um, to monitor and to really consider, you know, your appropriate action thresholds in order to kind of supplement the reliance then on chemical controls. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I don't think we can highlight enough that every successful IPM program is going to use all those different technologies mm-hmm. and isn't going to rely just heavily on one like chemical controls because like you said, that's that's when we start to see these resistance issues. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so we've talked about pest prevention and understanding their biology, uh, monitoring and using thresholds to determine timings, um, and then also touching on multiple control strategies. But um, is there anything else that's involved in an IPM program? I know, it just keeps going, but it is. (laughs) Now, this is, I know you said monitoring is the most important. This is what (laughs) I consider, it's the battle of the IPM. This is what I consider to be the most important and what I also consider to be often the most overlooked element of IPM, um, and that's evaluation. Because really, I was going to say, so make your case for this, because I'm curious. <laughs> All right, I will. So, I mean, my, my stance is that how do you know if something worked if you're not actually evaluating it, right? I think, you know, you spend, growers can spend basically their season going from one task to the next, because again, they, they have a lot going on. Um, and so it is really easy to kind of fall into the pattern of, just doing what you've always done. But it's really important to take the time to get that feedback loop on your program so that you know, you know, if they if you need to adapt at all to changes as they're arising, right? Again, you know, trying to get that on top of the pest management, the earlier the better. Because once it's established and once it's in place, it can be really difficult to try and manage. And so that information could be used kind of as a short-term solution, right? You just really, you're just seeing if, did your strategy that you just put in place work? Um, But then it can also be used for record keeping. So it's the idea of trying to, you know, you look at the historical trends or patterns in your field um, to see, you know, 
what's what kind of historical data you have over the years are you seeing any sort of patterns start to arise do you see particular pest issues do you see particular hot spots on your property that are really cause for concern um you know all of these kind of things come into play with you then you know being able to make plans for your future ipm program uh, and really be able to adapt to any sort of situation that's coming up okay so i know this is a tricky ask but (laughs) <laughs> if you could sum all of this up into one or two sentences or key oh. takeaway points, <laughs> if you're trying to convince, say, a grower to try and integrate more IPM strategies. You know what? That's a really good question. So I think what's really important to to know is that it's best to take baby steps, right? So don't try and train, change your practice all at once. Don't try and take on these really huge changes right away. Try just little changes, maybe one per year and see how it goes, right? Find what works for you. Um, Because if you, you know, if you try, a lot of times we see, you know, they try and take on something um, and it's just too much too soon, right? It's too much of a change. And uh, and so it's dropped pretty quickly. But if you go at it slowly um, and find, you know, ways to kind of integrate things that fit with what works for you in terms of labor, what works for you in terms of cost, and if you're actually seeing the benefits of what you're doing, uh, then that's the most important thing. Right. And you'll only know if you have benefits if you're evaluating. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, maybe maybe you made a good case for that. Um, this has been a great kind of case study on, on at least specific to apples, um, but just in general for getting to understand more how to use IPM strategies um, yeah. in your production practices. Yeah, it's really looking the big picture, right? How many how many ways can you manage this pest? Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah. thanks, Christy. This is great. That's <laughs> awesome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> that was Christy Grigg McGuffin, horticulture IPM specialist with the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food, and Rural Affairs. Thanks for tuning in to our episode today. This has been Cassie Russell and Christy Grick McGuffin for What's Growing On podcast. For more information on horticulture grown in Ontario, check out the links to our fruit, vegetable, and specialty crop blogs in the show notes. Special thanks to Christy for wearing two hats this week, co-hosting and being our guest for this week's extended episode. And as always, a big shout out goes to Michael Populin for the editing of our episodes. Music from this episode is the track Aspire from Scott Holmes. We'll be back soon with an all-new episode of What's Growing On. In the meantime, if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for a topic you'd like us to cover, please send us an email at onhortcrops at gmail.com. That's O-N-hortcrops at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>